So, just Judges chapter 5 for today. And if you're thinking, we've already covered Judges chapter 5. That's right, we have. And so, the general uh, joke that I have is, by the time I have to sit down and write a sermon, I have maybe three or four ideas kicking around in my head that could be sermons. And so the first draft ends up being something in the reign of two hours, maybe, three hours. And then I have to winnow that down into something that's manageable for whether it be a small group or a Sunday uh, evening service. So this is just something that was from previous weeks. And so I figured it was a good thing to revisit right now. So as we're kind of on pause before we move into chapter six. So revisiting Judges chapter five. I'm just going to read a selection of the verses and I'll call them out as I do so you can be pointed to them and then we will go from there. So Judges chapter 5 starting in verse 1 says, Then sang Deborah and Barak, the son of Abinoam, on that day, that the leaders took the lead in Israel, that the people offered themselves willingly. Bless the Lord. Hear, O kings, give ear, O princes, to the Lord. I will sing. I will make melody to the Lord, the God of of Israel. Then I want to skip ahead to verses 10 and 11. He says, Tell of it, you who ride on white donkeys, you who sit on rich carpets, and you who walk by the way, to the sound of musicians at the watering places, there they repeat the righteous triumphs of the Lord, the righteous triumphs of his villagers in Israel. Then down to the gates march the people of the Lord. And then finally, verse 31 which is at the very conclusion of the chapter. He says, So may all your enemies perish, O Lord, but your friends be like the sun as he rises in his might. So this selection of verses is really the, let's say, theme points of chapter 5. So if you were to read the parts of chapter 5 that we didn't read together just now, you would notice that it kind of fills out the gritty details of how all these statements come into play. So if you're writing a classic five paragraph uh, research paper or just a paper, you're supposed to write some topic sentence at the end, of, at the beginning of each paragraph and then kind of flush out what you were supposed to be talking about in the body of that paragraph. That's if you write, let's say, good paragraphs, right? The topic sentence introduces what that body is going to talk about. Next paragraph, new topic, new idea. And so these verses act as topic sentences that the stanzas in between them almost flush out. So the introduction there, verses 1, 2, and 3, introduce to us the thing that begins to be flushed out in verses 4 through 9. So it begins to call attention to the people. It says that the leaders took up the lead in Israel, and then it begins to account what that looks like. It talks about Deborah and her taking up the lead in Israel. Deborah assuming command, her rallying the people together. Then it says uh, in verse 10, tell of it, you who ride on white donkeys. In verse 11, to the sound of musicians. So again, telling it to music. And then it tells what we're saying. And verses 12 through uh, essentially verse 30 tells exactly what happened in chapter 4. It recounts the events as they unfolded. And it recounts them not just in a historical format, but also in an interpretive format. It's telling you the theology and the truth behind the events that occurred. So the title of this study as we look at all of chapter 5 together is called The Songs We Sing. And the idea behind it is that... When we sing songs, when we sing music, what we're doing is typically we're telling ourselves truth and we're reminding ourselves of truth. And with the Israelites in in their case, and even in our case as as believers, we know this to be true, that 
the songs we sing and the music that we repeat and even worship God with is music that recounts to us the history of God, what he has done for his people, what he has done for us, what he has done to be faithful to his people. And then it also tells us the truth or the interpretation of that history. So it doesn't just give us history in a neutral sense. It gives us history with an interpretation of that history. I'll give you an example. If you think about the song In Christ Alone, it doesn't just talk about Jesus dying on the cross. It says on that cross where Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. So it gives you a theological underpinning to the truth of the events of the cross. So it tells you history, but it also tells you truth. And if you look at this song, it tells us the history of the Israeli people, but it also tells us the truth of how God was working through that history. And in fact, all songs that you were to read in scripture do something like this. That's the reason they sing songs. It's not just to retell history in narrative format because you can accomplish in narrative format the, just the retelling of history. But often songs are very tightly wound in terms of both history and theology. You can look throughout the Psalms and you'll find Psalms where, for example, Psalm 90 speaks about Moses and his trusting in God as they lead the people through the wilderness. And he's talking about how he, he acquired wisdom and understanding and trust in God as he was led by the hand through the wilderness. So it recounts the events of the wilderness, but also the truth and the theology that begins to underpin that. And you can talk about the Psalms that recount the history of God's people through their disobedience and his faithfulness to them. And there are Psalms that say, you know, his steadfast love endures forever and it just repeats that over and over again. So it's telling us the history of the people, but also the theology of God as he works in that history. And that's what songs tend to do for us. And so this song is no different. So we're going to look at, let's say, the different functions or the different features of this song and ask ourselves the question, how could we put that on the ground for us and learn how to apply that even to our own practice of worship? So the first thing you'll notice this right away in verse 2, it says, it helps us to tell us that songs help us to remember. So in verse 2, it says that the leaders took the lead in Israel, that the people offered themselves willingly, bless the Lord. Now, all of that is a synopsis of what took place in chapter 4. So it's reminding them or helping them to remember what has just happened. Now those people, the leaders who took the lead, the people who offered themselves willingly, they're about to be blessed by God for their faithfulness, for going into battle, for fighting against Sisera, for going against the oppressors of Israel. So this reminder, this remembrance brings to mind for the people of Israel, a group of people that was faithful to God and the God who was faithful to them. It's reminding them of the events that occurred. And this remembrance serves a bunch of purposes. It helps the Israelites to learn from both good and bad examples. Remember in the song later, you'll see the example of Miraz, uh, which is a group of people that don't answer the call to go into battle against the Lord. That's in verse 23 of chapter five. And then also verse 24 of chapter five talks about Jael, the woman who is used by God to ultimately destroy Sisera. And so you have remembrance and learning that takes place through the remembrance. So as the people are told the history, they're also given both positive and negative examples, things to learn from. So history and the song teaches them, or it helps them to learn from their past, from the truth of the song. It also helps them to be encouraged, right? Now, anytime they're going to face future persecution, future exile, they have a song that they can go back to that is very easy to remember. It's told in a very beautiful poetic format, and it's going to help them to internalize truths about who God is. The best example of this for us on the ground would be songs that are typically categorized as African spirituals or African hymns. This is songs or a group of songs that is written by believing enslaved peoples in America during the slave trade. And these songs were sung to remind the people, to encourage them that there is a God who is faithful and he's faithful 
even if they don't get justice in this life, he's faithful into the future life. And so you can think about a song like Swing Low, Sweet Chariot, coming forth to carry me home. And so whatever goes on in this life, whatever brutal persecution happens in this life, whatever brutal mistreatment happens at the hands of people, even professing Christian people, God is the just judge. And those songs help to encourage them and to uh, almost cultivate a sense of hope and longing for the future life. This is an encouragement. The people of Israel use maybe this song as an encouragement in the future about God's mighty deliverance, about his mighty victory over oppressors. So it helps them to remember, it helps them to be encouraged by that remembering, and it helps them to find strength. Because if they find themselves in that moment of suffering, they find themselves in that moment of despondency and wanting to give up the faith, they're reminded about the God that they serve, the people that they're a part of, and the kinds of people that things go well for, and the kinds of people that things don't go well for. The kinds of people who things go well for, they're the people who are right in line with what God says. They're right in line with following what God says. So you have this beautiful memory device, and it's not, remember, just history or retelling. It's also retelling with theological interpretation. So the remembering is something that proves to us that history matters, but also not just any history matters, the correct understanding of that history matters. It's not just that this was a random chance victory by Israel, as later liberal scholars will come in and say Israel just won and they happen to write this song later to, to talk about their exploits. This is a theological telling of the story. And I think because scripture is inspired that this is the correct telling of the story. So songs can serve to remind us or help us to remember. The second thing, you'll see this in verse three, is songs can help us to focus on God. And this is something you see even a little bit in verse two. It says, bless the Lord, that's a conclusion. But verse three says, hero kings, give hero princes. And then once all the attention of these nobles is gathered, it says, to the Lord I will sing. He's not offering praises to the kings, to the princes. He's saying, all of us are gonna go ahead and turn our praise to the Lord. I will make melody to the Lord, the God of Israel. So as Deborah writes this song, she's saying, it's to the Lord. Everything is to the Lord. The victory is to the Lord. The deliverance is from the Lord. All of it points back to God. And so what that might give us a chance or an insight into is that the focus of this song is on God. And so really the right focus of all worship is to be on God. I think so often we approach worship with this idea that if I'm not in the mood for it, I don't need to. God, that would be legalism almost. But worship is focused on who God is. Worship is focused on bringing God right worship. So it doesn't necessarily matter how we feel as we go into worship. It matters about the God that we are worshiping. So when we get our hands and knees in the morning and we're going to uh, cry out to the Lord in prayer, it doesn't matter our heart's position. It matters the God that we are about to bring worship to. And so that should spur worship in us because the focus is not on us. It's not on us, it's not on our emotions, it's on God. It's on God and his truth, objective things that are anchored in history and reality, not things that move as the tide does. So the focus of this song is on God. It's not on the Israelites' potential loss. They probably lost some people as this battle was going on. The focus is on God, not on the people they lost. The focus is not on the unfaithful people. How easy it would have been to be discouraged by the amount of people that just didn't respond faithfully. You have more than half of Israel who doesn't faithfully respond. It's like the Benjamites, people from Ephraim, and a few other people. Judah doesn't show up. Miraz doesn't show up. There's all these people groups that don't show up to help the Israelites. And it could be very easy to be discouraged by that. But again, the focus is not on that. The focus is on God. So despite circumstance, even in a mighty victory, the focus gets back on God. And that's true, not even of this song. You can think about Exodus 15 and the song 
that uh, Mo, it's, I think it's called the Song of Moses. And Moses, after God leads them through the Red Sea, sings this mighty song of victory to God after the Egyptians have been defeated, after they've been led out of Egypt. He sings this song of victory. And this is something that they could be reminded by as they go into the wilderness, a song that they might have should, have, should have sung more often, should have taken to heart. And the focus of that song is on God. It's on his victory, his deliverance, and that should guide them as they move now into the wilderness. So you have those two pieces. The third piece that I think is beautiful about songs, and I think it's important that we know the kind of songs that we sing, you can see this in verse 10 and 11, is because songs help to teach us truth. Verse 10 and 11 begin to help us understand that. Verse 10 says, Tell of it. You who ride on white donkeys, you who sit on rich carpets, and you who walk by the way. To the sound of musicians at the watering places, there they repeat the righteous triumphs of the Lord, the righteous triumphs of his villagers in Israel. Then down the gates march the people of the Lord. So they're retelling this story of victory. They're calling people to arms. And this is almost something that they now march down to. They're going to retell this story in a, in a common place. They're going to do it at the watering places, the places where everyone can gather and get water. And they're going to tell it to everybody that they can. And music is a way, and songs are a way for us to teach truth. It's a way for us to internalize truth, or rather teach truth to ourselves. It's a way for us to teach truth to others, young Christians, young believers, young people in the faith. And it's also a way for us to teach truth one day, hopefully, to our children, if we're blessed with them. Or you can even think about spiritual children, in that sense, people who you're discipling. Putting them onto good music and raising them in good, faithful music helps them to internalize rich truths about who God is and what he's done. For the Israelites, the kind of songs that they sing help to inform a theology about who God is. So what the Israelites do is they have the book of Psalms. That's the songs that they sing. And those songs are rich with theological truth about who God is and what he's done. And these are the songs they commit to memory. They sing them and they internalize them and they memorize them. And that ought to lead to faithful Israelites. And, and we actually see this leaking out in, for example, Jesus and his life. You just see psalms rolling off of his tongue as he's under persecution or as he's in uh, tough situations. You see when Mary writes her Magnificat that she has this, almost this psalm-like quality to it where it just quote after quote after quote essentially coming from rich theology from the psalms. And she doesn't have hard copies of scripture, so she's likely memorized what she has through oral tradition, through the learning of likely psalms, which are easy to memorize in her context. And this helps her to have rich foundations in theology. So when the angel comes, she knows why he's coming and what he's talking about. And so you have this teaching that can happen through the medium of song. And song helps us, and even Deborah exhorts the people to use the medium of song to teach other people. Tell of it to as many people as will hear. And then the last thing that we can maybe get out of this psalm, uh, song in chapter 5, and you'll see this, actually this is verse 31 now. You can see it says, So may all your enemies perish, O Lord, but your friends be like the sun as he rises in his might. Now again, the theology of this we covered a few weeks ago, but reflectively, what this is giving us a piece of is the, the right response to any kind of act of God is a worshipful response. All theology, all doctrine ought to lead to worship. In fact, I would go as far as to say that if doctrine doesn't inspire worship, it's, it's a terminal, it's a, it's a dead point. If conviction doesn't inspire us to worship, it's moot. It doesn't matter anymore. If our reverence and awe of God is only limited to our understanding and it doesn't get us to worship, then it's, it's dumb. It's, it's a useless endeavor. Doctrine and all these other things ought to lead us to worshiping God. And in this case, reminding them of the victory 
leads them to worship God. And they, they worship and to the, to the where they bless God. They say, so may all the enemies of the Lord perish. This is a worshipful response. They're saying, it is good that this has happened, and we pray that it happens even more so. This is worship. This is reverence. This is awe given to God, hopefully by the people of Israel. So worship is a right response. It's a natural response. And so as we put these, let's say, pieces on the ground, there's a few questions we can ask ourselves about maybe how does this inform how we worship or uh, how we go about our worship. And so the first thing you might think about is, do you worship? Not, and I'm not talking about just on Sunday or just while the music is playing on Sunday. I'm talking about worship as a daily practice. A lot of us are good about getting into, let's say, doctrine and reflection on scripture as a daily practice. But what about terminating that into some form of worship for God? Now, that doesn't need to be out loud singing, although I think that's a very fitting medium. Songs are a very fitting, fitting medium to worship God. But what about contemplative worship, thinking through the truths of God and just glorifying him in prayer through those things, bringing worship to him as a result of the truths that he's given us, not just terminating on, I know more, so now I'm going to move on with my day, but I know more and this God is good who's given me this truth and worshiping him for that. You can worship God in prayer, you can worship in song, all of those things are good. So the first thing is just doing worship. So that could be as simple as getting a hymnal, buying an old one from a bookstore, or going ordering one online, and just singing a couple of stanzas or a couple of lines. And they're easy because they're not made for people who have large vocal ranges. Hymnals are published for people in regular churches who can sing humdrum kind of tunes, which all of us qualify for. So a hymnal is a great thing to do. A hymnal that helps you to lead you yourself in worship, maybe your friends in worship, the people you live with, but also uh, like, for example, in my case, leading my family in worship. So leading my wife in worship, and then one day leading children in worship as well. All of that is a fitting kind of way to have a regular practice of reverence for God. So the second thing is not just doing it, but also considering the content of our worship. So this now expands, let's say, into the broader realm of worship music or worship music that we sing in church would be considering the theology of what we sing, the content and the substance of what we sing. Luther would say it this way. He would say that theology, uh, or sorry, he would say worship is theology's handmaiden. Worship is theology's handmaiden, which means that worship music serves as a medium to help theology either be internalized or fall by the wayside. Worship is a, is a, and music is a way for people to either internalize truths or it's a way for us to subvert truth and a way for us to get around truth and not really fixate on truth because we think that that truth is good for studying but not great for praising. And so we create this distinction between the doctrine and the praise and worship. And you have whole denominations that kind of split in one direction or the other, but all of doctrine is worthy of worship. And if worship has no substance to it, it's not really worshipful. It's just you in a heightened emotional state, but it's not reverent, it's not awful uh, for God. And so as we put this on the ground, then our worship should be rich. And that means singing songs that have rich theology to them, rich worshipful content to them. A, a great example of this is a song that Luther wrote. It's called A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And you can look at that song and you can study the lyrics of it. It talks about Jesus, what he did on the cross, how he's a mighty fortress for his people in times of need and distress, which Luther wrote this right at the peak of the Reformation while he was at uh, a very high mode of focus by the Catholic Church. They were scrutinizing him carefully. They were persecuting him. They were looking to kill him. And he takes this song and he writes it as a, as a means to encourage himself and to encourage his church. And so you can study songs like that. Again, studying a hymnal is a great way to do that. Studying the Psalms, best place to find worship music content is the Psalms because there's no error in the Psalms. Uh, a hymn may err, no matter how old it is and how often it's been sung, it might have error in it. 
but the Psalms have no error in them. They're inspired scripture. So finding worship that is rich in theology. And then I would say the, the contrast to that, especially for people in our, let's say, circumstances, wouldn't be music that has bad or heretical theology in it, because often I think we can sniff that out pretty carefully. But the, the caution would really be music that has shallow theology in it. So heretical theology is easy to sniff out. Shallow theology is a little bit more subversive. And if we don't demand rich theology from our worship music, if we don't demand good content from our worship music, we can often begin to, not immediately, but over time, separate doctrine from worship. And then we begin to let those things trail off. And eventually we become cold and doctrinal when dealing with theology and in a heightened emotional state when we deal with, let's say, worship. And we think about them as two separate entities. But always in scripture, doctrine and worship are they're right after each other. They follow each other hand in hand as a, as a rightful response. And if you, and look no further than the Psalms, rich in doctrine, rich in worship. Both of those are hand in hand in the Psalms. And even in this song in uh, Judges 5 or in Exodus 15, same idea, rich in doctrine, rich in worship. And then the last thing would be uh, not only considering the content of our worship, but considering the broader intake of songs in general. So not just worship songs at this point, but songs that we would just listen to broadly. Songs and music have a way of bypassing the brain and going straight into the heart and allowing us to not think about what we're listening to. And if you don't believe me, go listen to a song that you listened to in high school and you thought was great and listen to the lyrics of it and listen to what it was saying and ask yourself the question, is this something that is a Christian, I believe, or is this something that is completely subversive to a Christian worldview? And if, you, if you've ever done this before, it's startling at best and demoralizing at worst. It's, it's terrible, the kinds of songs that we might have been okay with as younger believers. And so asking yourself the question, what do you listen to on a regular basis? And does that add to truth or does that subvert the truth of the gospel? <clears throat> I think a good example of this is a lot of us consider sexually explicit material in the form of television to be, to be heinous, to be a sin that ought to be confessed. But we might be totally okay with listening to that same stuff described in a song and think that that's acceptable because it has a good beat behind it, which is the same argument as saying, I can watch this on TV as long as there's a good plot line behind what's happening. And so where do we have that distinction? But I think even in the church, even among, let's say, mature Christians, you would have people who have these categories in their mind that can separate out good music as being somehow in a category that's untouchable, even though it communicates truth the same way that TV does, the same way that books do. And so we have to ask ourselves these questions. What do we listen to? And does that undermine or add to the worship of God? So considering all those things, first off, doing worship. Second off, having a high content to our worship. And then thirdly, considering the broader range of the music we listen to and asking ourselves the question, does it reflect the standard set forth in scripture about why music is written? Nowhere in scripture will you ever find a song that is written that doesn't have God as its focus, that doesn't have God at its center. And all of these songs are, let's say, good. Right? And there are songs that we might consider good that don't put God at their focus, and that should disqualify them from being considered good. That should disqualify them from being considered worthy of our listening. We only have a finite life, a finite amount of time in the day. Why waste our time listening to songs that don't inspire awe for the Lord? And so that's maybe a harsh exhortation. I understand what I'm saying, and I hear myself saying it as well. It's something I've reflected on even over this past week, and even uh, a lot in the car ride today. I had eight hours while I was sitting and contemplating this topic. And it's something that really struck me as maybe core or something that I think we ought to take a more careful look at as, as people who, who want to worship God faithfully. So let's go ahead and close in prayer and then we can open this up for uh, discussion. But 
Almighty God, we thank you for this time together. Lord, we thank you for the regular and faithful teaching that your word has for us. Lord, we just want to ask you to give us eyes to see and ears to hear, that you would help us to internalize what's from you and the things that I said that are from you tonight, Lord, that they would strike to the very core of our hearts and also the things that I said that are from me and not from you, Lord, that we would forget them as soon as they were spoken. We ask that you would help uh, to, uh, to interpret truth to us, to convict us of truth, and to inspire worship in our souls. Lord, we ask these things in your name. Amen.